at 9 and at 1030, um, we will uh, we'll have folks here in the, in the sanctuary. Um, and we are also going to be right here on Facebook Live. And then later it will be uh, posted on Vimeo. So whether you're here or you're at home or you're traveling or you don't even live in Tyler, but you've stumbled upon Bethel over the last several weeks, we want you to be a part of this body and a part of the worship that we've gathered for. So, so I'm glad you're here this morning. And we started a series last week in the book of Esther. Esther is the last of the history books in the Old Testament. And so if you've got your Bibles, it's, um, it's the book that's just before you get to Job in your Old Testament. And it is what we said last week is that it is unique amongst the books in the Bible because it is the only book that never mentions God. It doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention his activity explicitly. It doesn't talk about miracles or a revelation or even his word. It is a book that seemingly on the outside, if you just looked at it, you would think, well, this is, this is why is this even in the Bible? These people don't, um, don't seem to know who God is. And yet, what we argued was that this is the author's purposeful and um, explicit and um, intentional way of drawing us into this story and drawing us into our own story. And then ultimately drawing us to the story of his son, Jesus. Well, we mentioned that this is a, happens, um, the events of Esther take place about 500 years before Jesus. And the main character at the very beginning, it seems, is a guy who is um, the king of the, of the world, literally the known world, um, King Ahasuerus. He's also known in history as Xerxes, and he's the man in charge. And yet, as the events unfold, you wonder, is he really as in charge as the world would think? Well, he's defied um, by his queen, Vashti. It creates this plot crisis and ultimately becomes the catalyst that, that pushes us forward in the story as Xerxes' um, wise men, his council around him, come up with a plan to replace Queen Vashti, and that is that they're going to have a beauty pageant in all of Persia and, uh, and, and procure and through all the provinces of the most beautiful women who would go under a year of beauty training um, for a night spent with the king. And the idea is that at some point the king would end up choosing a queen, although he felt no real urgency about that. But when he met Esther, when Esther goes and spends that night, when, when Esther um, comes into his life, the text tells us there in the middle of chapter 2 that she found favor with the king. One of the things that we said is it draws us to the hints of the providence of God, that the providence of God in the shadow of the world, where, where visibly it seems as though there's no literal evidence of God, yet invisibly you're drawn to the reality that something else is going on in this story. And, and we're reminded of this New Testament reality that we live by faith and not by sight. And, and Esther, it it confronts that in us. It, it, it calls us to, to wonder, do we really believe this? You know, faith is mocked in the world. You know, the skeptic would say, no, if it, if it can't be proved by science, then, uh, then it can't be real. The atheist um, 
would say that, listen, faith is a, is a crutch. It's something that, we, um, uh, that, that the weaker part of us is drawn to. But the reality is there is nothing out there. We make our own destinies. You know, the pragmatist is drawn to a life that works. And if something doesn't work or doesn't seem like it's working, it should be abandoned. It also confronts the hopeless, the ones that would... Uh, that have come to a place in life that that feel like you know there there truly just are no answers to the chaos and the seeming recklessness of the world and of my life. Well, what Esther does is it reveals the the fault lines in that thinking, you know, the, the tremors that that expose the cracks, and and, and it tells us, listen. The way that the world is organized, the, the way that the world promotes itself w- w- with true power, that, that this is how you get true power. This is what it is. We find in Esther that true power, true worldly power is fragile. You know, Xerxes, this man of absolute power, brought to his knees in one defiant act. Haman, who we're going to be introduced to today in chapter 3, He's going to be entrusted with all the power and all the honor that one could have. And yet one act of defiance on Mordecai's part is going to reveal just how fragile he is. Well, it also confronts our ideas about weakness and the value and uh, the the treasure that comes from weakness. False promises are exposed— like loyalty will be rewarded. And the author is going to challenge us there. So if you would, um, this is what I want to do. I want to begin reading. I'm going to pick up at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. I don't have the scriptures for you on the screen today. We'll have those for you next week. But if you want to follow along, I'm in Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. And this is what it says. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting by the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Well, in verse 19, it opens up and it says, Hey, there's the second gathering of virgins, which which probably means the harem again, although scholars don't fully understand what that phrase means. But the important point here is that you find Mordecai at the king's gate. If you remember from last week, Mordecai is Esther's cousin, older cousin, who had become her guardian through adoption after her parents had died. And Mordecai is there in the king's gate. And what it, what it intimates or, or what it reveals is that Mordecai probably has some kind of position of authority. He probably somehow is employed in the king's um, uh, sort of uh, royal cohort, if you will. Not important enough to necessarily be known, but certainly employed by the empire. 
the, the gate, you could think of this gate as like the ancient equivalent of, of what we would call our law courts today. It was the royal court. It was the, it was the place where uh, important official business transacted. It was also the place people gathered to, to scale or to climb the ladder of importance, um, where, where you would go to get ahead, where you would go to get noticed or, or gain a following or influence opinion. All of those things happened at the king's gate. Well, in verse 21, you see that there's a plot, and there's these two eunuchs, these servants of the king, and they, they're conspiring, uh, Big Than and Teresh, uh, because they, they served in the royal court, but they're angry at Xerxes. You know, this man that's all-powerful and throws a party for six months, and seemingly, um, if you asked him, hey, what's the popular opinion of Xerxes, Xerxes? He would say, oh, I'm loved and I'm revered. And yet, what we find is that's not the case. Well, Mordecai hears of the plan and his loyalty, whether it's out of pragmatism to be on the good side of the king, or whether it's out of piety. A man who read Jeremiah, maybe, where... Jeremiah instructs those that are in exile, like Mordecai, to seek the welfare of the city. Either way, Mordecai takes this plan, he takes it to Esther, Esther takes it to the king in the name of Mordecai, it's investigated, it's found to be true, Big Than and Teresh are hung on the gallows, and the event, it says, is recorded in the chronicles of the king, the official records. You know what's missing at least from the end of chapter 2 is any mention from Xerxes to Mordecai any thank you any kind of reward any kind of acknowledgement that this man who was standing at the gate and uncovered this conspiracy actually saved his life well maybe that's something that comes about in chapter 3 well look with me chapter 3 verse 1 and this is what it says it says after these things King Ahasuerus promoted Haman well, there's a surprise there. It seems to be that we would have expected him to promote Mordecai. And yet now we're introduced to a new character in the story, and his name's Haman. And listen to how he's described. He's the Agagite, the son of um, Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Well, there are several things that we should notice about these first um, six verses. One is that when it says there at the beginning, after these things, you, you can find out when you put the, the history together from chapter 2, verse 16, in chapter 3, verse 7, that Esther has been the queen for about four years by now. Well, the other thing to notice is that when Haman is introduced, he's introduced with the lineage that should cause our ears to perk up. He's called Haman the Agagite. Well, what it means is that Haman, whether 
literally or spiritually. He has the spirit of. It's, it's, um, it's connecting him with an Old Testament character named King Agag. If we took the time, we could go to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and we could look at the story of where Saul is taking the, the, um, the army of Israel uh, to defeat the Amalekites. And the king of the Amalekites is a guy named Agag. And the Lord had told Saul, hey, listen, when you defeat the Amalekites, the, the ancient enemies of your people, you, you devote everything to destruction. And so Saul says, okay, okay. And so he goes, and yet what he does is he um, takes Agag, and instead of killing Agag, the king, as, the, as God has instructed, what he does is he takes him hostage. He takes him as a prisoner of war. He takes him as leverage for his own uh, future kingdom building. Well, the story in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel shows up, old Samuel shows up, God says to, uh, to Samuel, listen, I, I regret that I ever made Saul king. And Samuel shows up and confronts him and says, no, we devoted everything to destruction. He says, oh, well, what's the sheep I hear? And then ultimately what happens is Samuel will take King Agag and he will cut him to pieces in the presence of God. It's actually a beautiful story, a bedtime story you can tell your children at night. Well, no, it's not. But it, it is meant when he says Haman, the, the, the Agagite, it's meant to draw us back into um, Haman, we're introduced here, is part of the ancient enemy against Israel. In fact, later on, as Haman will be described, he'll be called the Agagite. He'll also be called uh, the enemy of the people of God or the enemy of the Jews. It's almost a synonym for them. Well, the tension happens in, in verse 2. The king, he um, has promoted Haman, and we don't know why. In fact, we discover um, throughout the next chapters that Haman is, is not anybody that anybody should have promoted. Yet the king does. And what he does is he promotes him, and then he puts out a command, a decree, that the servants are to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And yet the tension comes when Mordecai won't bow down or pay homage. Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us why? Maybe it's because of the history. Maybe the Amalekites and the Jews. You go back to Agag and Saul. In fact, when you see Mordecai introduced there at the beginning of chapter 2, you find that Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin, the, the same line as Saul. In fact, it says he's from the line of Kish, Kish being Saul's father. You know, it could have just been as simple as this. Maybe no one liked Haman. You know, he was arrogant. He was pretentious. He, he's the kind of guy that the king would have had to issue a command for people to bow down and to pay homage. Well, it escalates in verses 3 and 4. And Mordecai's refusal uh, doesn't go unnoticed, and, and some people come along, probably some folks trying to win favor with Haman, and they begin to question him, why aren't you bowing down? And he wouldn't give them an answer. Ultimately, he reveals he's a Jew. They take that information to Haman, and the effect is this. In verses 5 and 6, you see that Haman is furious. He's outraged. If, if, if he moved right then, Mordecai would likely have been executed, probably successfully. But his fury, it, it's so intense, it's, it's, it's building. He decides he wants to eradicate all of the Jews. Notice the phrase at the very end of 6, throughout the whole kingdom 
of Ahasuerus, the kingdom that was 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. It would have included Israel as well. You know, there are a couple of things to observe here. One is, is the, the, the place of human pride in the story. C.S. Lewis says that pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. It's what pride does. But pride makes you concentrate on, on everything about you so that you uh, don't get into relationships. You, you, you don't get into jobs. You don't do anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. Lewis goes on, pride gets no pleasure of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. Pride turns everything everything into a means to an end. You no longer do anything for itself. You do everything for you. You know, it's not just pride, though, that insidious, poisonous, lethal pride that will get played out through the rest of this story. What we find is we're drawn into a story that's even bigger than this story. You know, as Esther is this book that means to to draw us into its story and and by doing that, drawing us into our story. We can't help but realize that when we do, we find that we're part of a bigger story. You see, in, in Esther here, all of a sudden, this isn't story a story just about a Jew named Mordecai and his cousin Esther living in exile in Persia. It's not about their good fortune or their stroke of luck. It, it, this is about all of God's people. Do you remember what we said uh, last week, that, 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 that God's not mentioned? He, he appears to be silent. He appears in the story to be absent. Maybe it's because these people, these Jews that were in Persia, they, they weren't particularly faithful. And maybe they had forgotten about God. Maybe when everybody else was coming out of exile and them deciding to stay there in exile because life was good, maybe they concluded that, Listen, if God is there, he's not concerned with them. And yet, for whatever reason, the text here, again, it draws us into the story. It draws us into our story. God's silence is not his absence. God's invisible hand is not his abandonment. No, no, see, the author, he wants to stir you. He, he wants to stir you up and, and have you sit up and, and, and lean in. It's a story about God's people. And as you go through the text, notice how many times in Esther you count the word Jews or the Jew. It shows up in Esther by far more than any other Old Testament book. You know, it reminds us. If you went all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, you'd find that God calls a man named Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldean. Interestingly enough, Ur is about 150 miles south of Babylon and about 130 miles uh, west of Susa, the capital here. And, and God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he, and he brings him. He says, listen, I want you to follow me. I'm going to take you to a land, and I'm going to make you a people, and I'm going to uh, cause you to be a great blessing. And, he, and the promise goes like this, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, what we remember is that there's a promise to Abraham, an unconditional promise, a promise that by the time of this story, Esther would have been about 1,500 years old. See, God had a people. He he'd made a promise, and, and whether they remembered it or not, whether they were faithful to him or not, God remembered. God was faithful. And so Haman, he sets out to destroy the Jews, to curse the Jews. And while God is not mentioned, he's there. He's not absent. He's present. He's faithful. He's keeping the promise that he made. You know, interestingly enough, the storyline of the world hasn't changed one bit since the time of Esther. You see, um, there's still people that hate God's people. You, you can you can find this um, all over the world, even if you look in the news today. I'll give you two stories you can look up. One, you can find that just this weekend, um, there were a group of, of, of people that were setting out to um, uh, uh, desecrate a holy site of the Jews in Iran. You know what the site was? It was the tomb. It is the tomb of Esther and Mordecai. It was set on fire in the middle of the night, Friday night, in this act of hatred against the Jews. Well, another one that you can look up, and I'll uh, just mention it briefly, but if you were to read the stories about the ire and um, the um, hatred is the word I guess I would use, about the Samaritan's Purse presence in the middle of New York where they went and set up the clinic that called doctors and nurses from all over the country to come and to, and to, and to plant there and to help the city with this crisis. And, and there they are in tents in the middle of Central Park because the place they were originally going to go wasn't going to house them. And, and yet, the, the city, the outcry against their very presence... They, this, just this past week, packed everything up and left. Almost into leaving, you can hear the, the city, so many of them just cheering that they're gone. You know, there's this hatred of God's people that has always been part of the story that draws us to believe that there's something underneath the hatred, something underneath this world that is driving a hatred towards God's people. Well, look with me in the next bit. I'll pick up in, in verse 7. It says, In the first month, which is that of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king of Ahasuerus, they cast, <clears throat> they cast fur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. It goes on to say that they were casting lots, and, and what they were essentially doing is they were trying to pick the perfect day. And all the lots were cast, and however you find in Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lots are cast, but it's God that's in control. And as the lots were cast, the month is day, and the month and the day are set, and it's set far out in the future that it gives almost uh, an entire year for the Jews to be able to prepare for this conflict with their enemies. One commentator said that, though determined by lot, the day chosen seems maliciously ironic. It's the 13th day is what the text will tell us, and 
The commentator observes that the thir number 13 was considered unlucky by the Persians and the Babylonians. Well, the 13th day of the month, the day on which the edict decreeing the Jews' destruction was dispatched, is the day just before Passover, the commemoration of the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. For the Jews that knew their calendar, and they would have, reading this story where God is not mentioned, it would not have been lost on them that some divine, invisible presence was at work for God's people. Well, Haman describes these people to the king. He calls them scattered and dispersed. He says their laws are different. He says that it, it's not to the king's prophet to tolerate them, even though it was Mordecai, this Jew, who was responsible for the very life of the king. Well, in 9 through 11, you see that he says, well, if you give me permission to slaughter them and take their wealth, all that wealth, or lots of it, will come into your treasury. This treasury of a king who had been depleted by parties and, and failed campaigns across the world. And so what happens is Haman, he makes a law, and the law of the Medes and the Persians was irrevocable. If the king made a decree, it could not be overturned. And so Haman sets a day, and on that day, the neighbors of the Jews... Anywhere in the Persian Empire, we're going to be able to destroy them and take their wealth as plunder, and thousands of people were going to die. And Haman hatches the plan. Well, in verse 12, it says, The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written in the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces to all the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet. And the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and, and, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was issued as a decree to every province uh, by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion written in the native language of the peoples within the empire the edict instructs everyone in the empire not just the military not just the army but everyone to destroy and to kill and to annihilate and not just the men but those young and those old the women and the children in one like an ancient version of the movie The Purge. So the couriers go out as ordered by the king. The edict is issued in the capital of the city. It goes out to all the land. And when the edict is received in Susa, the text tells us that, that the city w was in confusion, probably because they can't imagine what's gotten into the king to issue something so brutal as an extermination like this. And then in contrast, you find this calm, this sort of chilling, 
calm taking place in the capital, in the, in the king's quarters, as he and Haman sit down for a drink. Well, last week we ended with a ray of hope. Esther found favor, and, and we said that, listen, it gives rise in the reader, it gives rise to us to, to see that, you know, something's beyond what our eyes can see is in play. An invisible king who, who's the true ruler, who's the true power in the world. But this week, this week we end chapter 3, and it's, and it's darkness and chaos and evil. The, the strong hatred of God's people seemingly no hope. Well, I argue again, it's meant to draw us into the story. Why? Well, why is there such hatred of the people of God? Well, why is it that, that the powers that be that seek to destroy the, 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 uh, the, the people of God, why does it seem to be a story that, that's never gone away? And I would say it may be this paradoxical ray of hope for us this morning. You see, because I think it points to something greater. This visible kingdom waging war against the invisible king. Against whom the hatred is really directed. See, I think what this does is it points us forward as biblical readers. It points us forward 500 years to the time when uh, the power of, of a later empire was directed against God's purpose there. Acts chapter 4 tells us Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles along with the people of Israel to conspire against Jesus. And even there in that hatred, the, the author of the book of Acts hints to an invisible ruler against whom they conspire. An invisible king whom they seek to destroy. And perhaps even this hint, even this morning, points us to, uh, in weakness, a Savior will be revealed. That this story is not over. That the story has only just begun. These people of God, whether they recognize it on their own or not, have not been forgotten by God who they think is silent. Yet a God who, in his providence and in his love and in his faithfulness, is keeping his promises to his. But we'll have to wait until next week to see how the story continues. Until then, I invite you to, to draw into this story. To take some time this week and to read it. To notice the prominence of the people of God as your heart is being prepared to see the promises of God poured out on those he loves. So if you would, would you bow with me? And let's pray. Father, I pray that you will use your word and by your spirit draw us to your son. The reality that as we look at a story like this, we we so tend to want to put our play our 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 ourself in the place of, of the hero of the story, and and yet, Father, what we realize is that as we read this story and we enter into it and 
we see and we observe the pride and the, and the bitterness and the, the things underneath Haman's life that's, that's drawing. Father, we realize that we are all Haman in a way. Driven by pride. Not that Haman ends up saving himself. That he, that he accomplishes all that he sets out in his pride. Father, for us, the, the Haman in us, we cannot save ourselves. We find ourselves enemies of you. And yet you sent your son to take our place. You, you sent your son in humility to defeat our pride. You sent your son to take our shame and our sin so that you could lavish upon us your grace and your love and your glory. Father, you sought to make us right. And you sacrificed your Son in our place to do that. Father, I pray this morning we'd be reminded we're not our own saviors. You sent your Son to save us. And for all those that haven't trusted in Him, Father, this morning would you draw them to the place of seeing Him rightly and clearly and lifted up. Father, we ask that you would crush that inside of us that stands against you. And Father, draw us into the story of your salvation. We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.